The Story of Old Hamlet The stars were out and the night was bitter cold. Somewhere out in the dark the sea lapped against the shore, but it could not be seen from the castle gate, from where Bernardo peered out short-sightedly into the gloom. Ho, Bernardo! Ho, Marcellus! Did you bring him, Horatio? A piece of him, said Horatio, coming up behind Marcellus. I think a part of me might have frozen off back there. Thank you for coming, said Bernardo sincerely. He came, even though he thinks this is a great waste of time, said Marcellus, shaking his comrade's hand. Horatio is convinced our only problem is the long winter nights and that we are seeing things in the snowstorms that are not there. Horatio was about to agree with this when the bell tolled one and Marcellus gripped the arms of the other two, one on each side, and cried out in horror. Look, he shouted. There it is. Horatio looked. A figure walked towards them through the whirling snow. It was tall, dark, and strangely bulky. He realised it was wearing an old-fashioned style of armour and was fully kitted out for war. At first he thought maybe it was just an older man, confused and lost in the storm, but as it came closer it took off its headgear and he felt his stomach turn over and his breath catch in his throat. Do you see? hissed Barnardo nervously. Does it not look just like the dead king? It does, exclaimed Horatio, and he felt the two soldiers sigh in relief beside him. How is that possible? You are the scholar, Horatio, said Marcellus. Speak to it. Ask it what it is and what it's doing here. Shaking, Horatio stepped forward, his feet crunching in the snow, the two hardened soldiers shrinking back behind him. What are you? he asked the figure as it came closer and closer to him. The dead king's eyes turned towards him. The mouth almost opened, but no sound came out. The figure's expression fell into a grimace and it turned its head away, turned its body away from the castle and stalked off into the blizzard. Well, said Barnardo, do you still think we are imagining things? No, said Horatio shakily. No, that was no dream or vision. It was real, I could see it, I could feel its presence, I could smell it. I even recognised that old expression. He frowned, just like that. It was a terrifyingly fierce expression. I have never forgotten it. So what is it? demanded Marcellus. I don't know, I don't know. Horatio sat down hard on an old tree stump near the wall, his head in his hands. It looked like the old king did years ago, when he defeated old Fortinbras in Norway. It's a demon, surely, said Bernardo. A demon must have taken the form of our king as part of some trick to bring down the state. Perhaps it was summoned by young Fortinbras of Norway, suggested Marcellus. He is too afraid to meet us in battle, so he has sent this demon to bring us down from within before he has even set foot in Denmark. Well, perhaps, said Horatio politely. You have another explanation, my lord? asked Barnardo. In ancient Rome, said Horatio slowly, 
The spirits of the dead sometimes appeared as an omen, a sign or portent of things to come. A good omen? asked Marcellus. The king appeared as he did on the day he won a great victory. Horatio shook his head. Not usually a good sign, he said. The famous dictator Sulla saw his dead son calling to him shortly before he himself died, and Gaius Gracchus' murdered brother Tiberius warned him that they would suffer the same fate before it happened. I'm afraid this might be an omen and a warning, that we are all in great danger. I have been away for a while. Do you know of anything that threatens us? Bernardo and Marcellus held up their torches and looked towards each other over Horatio's head. Bernardo raised his eyebrows a little. Marcellus nodded. All is not well lately, that much is true, he said carefully. Something is rotten in the state of Denmark, said Marcellus more forcefully. The new king and queen do well enough, but the prince, young Hamlet, barely speaks or leaves his rooms. The new queen, said Horatio incredulously. Who is that? Why, it is the old queen who is new again, said Barnardo. Did you not hear? The old king's brother Claudius has claimed the throne and will marry the queen, his sister-in-law, tomorrow. Well, said Horatio, and stopped there. Well, he said again, more quietly to himself. Standing up, he shook himself all over and was about to leave when he glanced up and... Look, he cried, here it comes again. Stop! Stop! Dream or night vision! The figure did not stop, but walked slowly towards the group again. What are you? demanded Horatio again. What do you want? Are you here to bring us a warning? Do you know something about the future of Denmark? Racking his brains for any other explanation, he tried to remember the ghost stories he'd heard by the fire over the years and why a ghost might return to haunt the earth. Have you left buried treasure somewhere and you have come to tell us where it is? He asked, a little hopefully. Or perhaps is there something someone still living can do that will allow you to rest? At this, the image of the dead king's face, barely a breath away for those that had breath, turned to look straight at Horatio, his eyes boring into the young man's. But his mouth remained closed, and at that moment a cock crew. With one more glance, the figure turned away, moving back into the forest again. Stop! Speak! cried Horatio. Stop it, Marcellus! Shall I strike it? asked Marcellus, holding out his weapon. Yes! said both Horatio and Bernardo at once. Marcellus struck out but met only air, and the figure continued to stalk away unperturbed. He started to run after it, but Bernardo caught his sleeve and pulled him back. It's gone, he said, it's gone, and we have our duty, he gestured to the guardhouse at the gate. It left when it heard the cock crow, said Horatio. Perhaps it is a demon, and perhaps it will speak, but not to us, he looked to the other two. We need to tell young Hamlet. Is that you, Horatio? Hamlet the Younger stood alone in a far corner of the great hall, 
still wearing his funeral black, though the evergreen branches brought in to brighten up the winter wedding were strewn across the floor. Yes, it's me. How are you? All the better for seeing you, but what brings you here from Wittenberg? You are such a dedicated student, I did not think you would ever take a break. I came for your father's funeral, my lord. Hamlet's face fell, and a shadow passed across his eyes. <laughs> Do not mock me, my friend. Surely it was to see my mother's wedding. The one did follow quickly after the other, that is true, said Horatio carefully. Ah, well, it's to save money, you see, said Hamlet with false brightness. The baked meats from the funeral are to be served up as cold meats at the wedding feast. My uncle is nothing if not frugal. He sighed and turned away to stare blankly down the hall. It has all happened so fast, I cannot take it in. My father. I think I see my father. Where? gasped Horatio, glancing around him fearfully. Hamlet stood and watched his friend twitch like a nervous hen. In my mind's eye, Horatio, he said. What did you think I meant? I met him once, said Horatio distractedly. He was a handsome man and intimidating, very king-like. He was a man like any other, said Hamlet with a sigh. But he did have a knack for looking the part, and for getting men to cower before him when he wanted to. We shall not see his like again. I think I saw him last night, said Horatio. Saw who? asked Hamlet distractedly. The old king, your father, said Horatio. The king, my father, said Hamlet slowly, finally catching on. What? What? What are you talking about? For the past three nights, these men, and here Horatio gestured towards Marcellus and Barnardo, hovering uncomfortably in the doorway, have seen something that looks exactly like the old king, your father. It wears full armour of the old style, like that he wore when he was younger and a warrior. Every night it walks towards and past them during the night while they are on watch. Last night they asked me to join them and I saw it too. My lord, it looked exactly like your late father. You could see its face? asked Hamlet. Yes, said Horatio, it wore its beaver up. Did you speak to it? whispered Hamlet. I tried, said Horatio. I asked it what it was and what it wanted several times, but it made no answer. I thought it was about to speak once, but then a cock crowed and it went away again. We thought, perhaps, though, it might speak to you. Hamlet looked around himself at the wedding detritus strewn about the hall. Perhaps, he said slowly. He looked up towards Barnardo and Marcellus. Do you have the watch tonight? he asked. We do, sir, they said at once. All right, said Hamlet carefully. All right, I'll come tonight. It will be easy to get away. The new king, his voice dripping scorn, will follow the old custom tonight, so there will be plenty of noise and no one will be paying any attention to me. The old custom? asked Horatio. There is an old tradition, Horatio, for a nobleman on his wedding night to drink and celebrate with his friends, and then all these men fetch the new bride and carry her off to the marriage bed, 
and the drunkards stand around singing bawdy songs while the groom gets down to business. It is a very ancient tradition, but to be honest, I think it is more honoured in the breach than the observance, especially when the bride is hardly a young virgin but a widow with a grown son. He shuddered, and Horatio made a face. Still, said Hamlet, it will be useful, as no one will notice anything that we four might be doing while all that is going on. So I shall come tonight and see this thing, and if I can make it speak, I will. The night was even colder than the last, and the snow swirled even more thickly as Barnardo and Marcellus relieved the guards, and Horatio and Hamlet stood in the small shelter of the gatehouse, blowing on their gloved hands and stamping their feet. "'You said it came when the bell tolled one?' said Hamlet. Horatio nodded. A distant trumpet blared and he jumped, but Hamlet patted his arm reassuringly. "'It is just the wedding night ritual I told you about,' he said. My uncle is taking my mother to bed. The silence stretched out uncomfortably for some minutes. It was almost with relief that Horatio, looking up and into the woods, cried, Look! Here it comes! Just as before, the tall, shadowy figure approached slowly and deliberately through the white-flecked trees, advancing steadily on the four shivering figures under the gate. Once again, its beaver was up, and its facial features could be clearly seen. "'Angels and ministers of grace defend us!' cried Hamlet as it came into view. "'Father!' Barnardo and Marcellus stood stock still, weapons at the ready either side of the gate. Horatio slunk back to hug the wall and leave the two Hamlets to each other. "'Are you my father?' Hamlet asked the figure. It said nothing, but continued its usual progress past the gate. Hamlet shook himself. "'Are you a demon?' he asked more loudly. "'Are you an angel? Are you a messenger from God, or a trick of the devil?' "'Or of the light,' muttered Horatio, but without much conviction. "'You look like my father,' said Hamlet, his voice cracking. Then, more confidently, "'I'll call you father,' he decided. "'King!' Father, Royal Dane, will you speak to me? The figure stopped briefly in its plodding progress and turned towards Hamlet. It raised one arm and beckoned towards him, then creakily returned its arm to its side and continued on its way, curving back into the woods. Hamlet started forward to follow it. Do not go, my lord, cried Marcellus in fear. He's right, said Horatio, you should not go with it. You do not know what it is or what it wants. Another trumpet blared from inside the castle. <laughs> Why not go, said Hamlet. What do I care for my life any more? And what could it possibly do to my immortal soul, which is the only thing that matters? Look, it's beckoning me again. I must go and make it speak to me. No! Horatio grabbed Hamlet roughly by the arm, pulling on him with all his might. It is a demon, my friend. It might tempt you off the cliff, or take on some other horrible form and attack you, or drive you to madness. But Hamlet was the stronger man by some way, and far more of an athlete than Horatio. 
It's calling me, he cried as he pulled himself out of Horatio's grip, although the figure still had not spoken. It's beckoning me. My father is beckoning me. I must follow him. And with that, he turned his back on his friends and hurried after the mysterious figure into the woods. Hamlet followed the silent knight for a couple of hundred yards before he called out again, Wait! Where are you leading me? Speak! The figure stopped moving and silently spun around to face him. Finally, it spoke. Deep and sad, but it sounded just like his father's voice. Listen, it said at last. For soon I will be returned to fire and sulphur and torment. Poor ghost, said Hamlet quietly. But now that the thing had started speaking, it seemed disinclined to stop. I am your father's spirit, it said. At night I am condemned to walk the earth, while during the day I writhe in the flames of purgatory until all my sins are burned away. It will be a long, long time before I am released from the fire. If I could only tell you the suffering I have to endure. It is torture, endless torture in a thousand different ways such that I cannot tell to a living man. Secrets I am forbidden to reveal to the living. If only I could tell you. Your eyes would pop out of your skull and every hair on your body stand on end. Your soul would be wrecked and your young blood frozen. And so, if you ever loved your father, I beg you, avenge my murder. Murder, cried Hamlet. I thought you were killed by a snake bite while sleeping in the orchard in the last heat of the autumn. It was a snake of a kind, the ghost intoned. The serpent that killed your father now wears his crown. I knew it, Hamlet exclaimed. My uncle! Yes, that incestuous, adulterate beast. He poured poison in my ear while I slept, taking my crown, my queen and my life all in one blow. He seduced my seeming virtuous queen, and sent me to my death without confession, without the last rites, with all my sins laid upon me, leaving me to the furnace. Oh, horrible, oh, horrible, most horrible. The ghost seemed to draw breath, though he could have no use for it any more. Avenge me, it demanded again. Avenge my murder, avenge my suffering, avenge the destruction of my marriage. But do not blame your mother. Leave her to God. Just do not let my brother sit in my throne or sleep in my bed one moment longer. He paused a moment to sniff the air. I smell the dawn, it said. Farewell and remember me. The figure moved away, quicker than before, into the shadows of the woods. Hamlet sank down to lean his hands on his knees and hang his head, but he had barely gathered his wits when Horatio and Marcellus came crashing through the trees, Horatio pulling him up while Marcellus stood guard with his weapon raised. "'What happened?' Horatio asked, almost shouting against the rising wind. 
It seems a man may smile and smile and be a villain, gasped Hamlet. I think we should go back. We should shake hands and part ways. You should go back, back to Wittenberg. We all have business to do. I have business to do. What's the matter, said Horatio. These are wild and whirling words. You are not making sense, my lord. It is an honest ghost, Horatio, said Hamlet. It is my father's spirit. He is trapped and tormented. I must avenge him. He demands it of me. My lord, said Horatio carefully, are you sure? If your father's spirit is being tortured for its sins, why would it add to those sins by forcing you to do something so sinful? Surely this is more likely the request of a demon, or of a dream or nightmare come from the forest. There are more things between heaven and earth, Horatio, said Hamlet, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. A strange, eerie groaning sound swelled out from deep in the forest, and all three cringed. It is my father's spirit, insisted Hamlet. I know it. I feel it. I must avenge him. He glanced at the other two, suddenly worried. You must swear to say nothing of this to anyone, he said. Swear on your mother's lives. Swear by heaven above. Swear by my sword. Swear, came a booming voice from the forest. Tentatively, Horatio placed a hand on the upturned hilt of Hamlet's sword. Marcellus hesitated, glancing towards the castle, and touched his hand briefly to his badge of duty. Another rumble burst out from the forest, and, apparently more afraid of the dead king than the living one, he joined his hand with Horatio's. Together they swore to say nothing of what they had seen and heard. "'Thank you,' said Hamlet, with a sigh of relief." I do not know how I will do this, or what may come of it, but I thank you. With that he put his sword away, squared his shoulders, and crunched through the snow back to the castle. Marcellus followed close behind, weapon raised to protect his lord and master. Horatio paused a moment, peering into the forest. There was nothing there now and somewhere beyond the trees dawn was creeping towards the horizon. Angels and ministers of grace defend us, Horatio murmured quietly. I've got a bad feeling about this. He closed his eyes and shook the snow from his hair, rubbed his face with his hands, and followed his companions back into the castle. The end, or perhaps the beginning. Hello and welcome back to Creepy Classics, the podcast retelling and discussing ancient medieval and early modern ghost stories. I'm Juliet Harrison, I'm Senior Lecturer in History at Newman University and I'm a specialist in ancient history, particularly ancient religion and ancient ghost folklore. I have been on maternity leave for some time so we are back, we are relaunching and I have been promising ancient medieval and early modern ghost stories since I started this podcast two years ago and I had not yet done an early modern ghost story. 
So for our Halloween relaunch, I thought this was a good time to actually cover an early modern ghost story. Uh, I am a specialist in ancient Roman history and to a lesser extent ancient Greek history. Uh, I dip my toe in medieval occasionally, but early modern is really quite far outside of my area. Uh, So that's why I've put off doing an early modern story for so long. Uh, Basically, it requires four times the amount of research uh, just to try and get to grips with what's going on in the early modern period and in early modern ghost stories. Um, But I started with quite possibly the most famous early modern ghost story, maybe, uh, and one that I am very familiar with myself. So I gave myself a bit of a head start that way. Uh, So this is, of course, adapted from Shakespeare's play Hamlet. I love Hamlet. Uh, I love Shakespeare. I I, I really love Shakespeare plays and poetry, but especially the plays. Uh, Hamlet is one of my favourites. I studied it for A-level, so I have studied it in school, albeit that was a very long time ago. We're talking 22 years ago now, something like that. Um, It's obviously extremely well known uh, and was considered by uh, Victorians, people in the early 20th century, to be one of the two best plays ever written, the other one being Sophocles' Oedipus Rex. Uh, This is partly why people are so keen to see Oedipal themes in Hamlet. Hamlet was written about 1599 to 1601, right at the end of the reign of Elizabeth I. Shakespeare's son, Hamnet, had died at the age of about 11 in 1596. So he is writing this play about death, about suicidal thoughts, um, about grief in the wake of the death of his son, um, who is almost the same name as the lead character. It's adapted from a Danish legend uh, about uh, a prince called Amleth. Uh, And I'm just going to quote from Britannica.com briefly. (laughs) Shakespeare's telling of the story of Prince Hamlet was derived from several sources, notably books three and four of Saxo Grammaticus's 12th century Gesta Danorum and from volume five of Histoire Tragique, a free translation of Saxo by François de Belforêt. The play was evidently preceded by another play of Hamlet, now lost, usually referred to as the Ur-Hamlet, of which Thomas Kidd is a conjectured author. So I am reliant on Britannica.com for that information. Uh, It's not uh, something I'm familiar with. Um, But importantly, it is a medieval legend that is then put down in a late medieval, sort of mid-medieval text and then translated into French. Shakespeare could be reading the Latin or the French, and there is uh, most likely uh, another play on the same theme, um, which uh, had been produced not long before. So, in theory, the setting of this story is medieval, possibly early medieval, um, but... I have been quite vague about the setting. Normally, I'm much more careful when I write these stories for this podcast to write historical fiction, and historical fiction often includes descriptions of sights and sounds and smells, specifics about clothing or items people are using or the buildings they're in, things that 
put uh, the reader or listener in this case into the past that helped them to picture an historical setting. And in writing this story, I have done very little of that. uh, And that is on purpose. Um, Shakespeare did not set his play in a realistic medieval setting. There's lots of details in Shakespeare's play that are Elizabethan, that are early modern, the details of the universities, of course, the language, um, various kind of details around uh, the culture of the play are early modern. But at the same time, it wasn't quite an entirely modern story either. Most importantly, he implies that Hamlet, the Prince of Denmark, is Catholic. And by the time Shakespeare was writing, Denmark was predominantly Protestant. We'll come back to that. Uh, but it, it does have a sort of a, a loosely medieval suggested setting uh, as the original story was. And this is one of the reasons that I think Shakespeare's plays are so enduring and why they keep being produced over and over and over again. They have very, very loose historical settings. And that's true of the Roman ones as well. <laughs> um, interestingly, the plays with medieval or contemporary settings like the Scottish play and Hamlet and and all of those, Romeo and Juliet, they are often given modern updates when they're produced. And even some of the history plays, you know, I've seen Richard III has had a modern update. And yet the plays set in ancient Rome don't often. They do sometimes. Ray Fiennes did a film of Coriolanus where he updated it to a modern setting. But the plays set in ancient Rome, especially Julius Caesar, don't get modern updates quite so much, at least not on screen, maybe more often on stage. But all of Shakespeare's plays have very loose historical settings. None of them are really set in the time the story takes place. And they're not quite set in Shakespeare's own time either. They all exist in this kind of netherworld. And that's why they have lasted so well, that they don't have um, a strong historical setting. They tell stories that don't rely on being in any one particular time and place. Um, They rely on certain things. We'll talk about the religious aspects, um, but also things like the fact that Danish kings were technically elected is part of the story, but you only really notice it if you really dig into it. (laughs) Um, The the general setting is quite loose. And there's loads of inconsistencies as well. Shakespeare was not worried about being consistent. I mean, you watch the play through and did Hamlet Senior die one month, two months or four months ago? It's not very clear. What time of year is it? The guards are freezing cold, but a month ago he was sleeping in the orchard and Ophelia picks summer flowers, if of course she has actual flowers depends on the production. The legend of Amleth originally would have been pre-Christian as well, but then it would have had Christian elements added by the time the uh, 12th century version is written down. It's been Christianized. Um, and again, the the Christian aspect is key to what's going on with the ghost. So that's something we'll talk about. But basically, I've been pretty vague with the setting. I've taken lots of inspiration from Kenneth Branagh's 1996 film version, although he sets it in a sort of a 19th century. uh, And I haven't done that. My setting is vaguely medieval. I've got the reference to the beaver on the armour. And 
references to a castle and a gatehouse. So I, I have it sort of medieval-ish. Uh, several films set it by the sea, partly because of Horatio's line about um, the demon is going to lead Hamlet off the cliff. Um, my description of the armour, the castle, the weapons, though, apart from the references like the one to a beaver that are actually in the play, are all deliberately super vague. So all those kind of horribly vague lines about his weapon, um, I've done that on purpose because I didn't want to tie it to a particular period. Um Although one thing I couldn't let rest, I have corrected Horatio's ancient Roman history. Uh, I could not cope with the fact Horatio uh, got his Roman history slightly wrong and his description of omens before the death of Julius Caesar is roughly accurate but not quite. If we're talking about ghosts specifically appearing as a death omen, there are better examples than Julius Caesar. Um, I could not resist the urge to correct Horatio's ancient Roman history. For Horatio himself, by the way, I've made him Danish, but probably upper middle class, not aristocratic, because he has to have a Danish custom explained to him. And yet at the same time, he's come back for the king's funeral. So either he's just a really good friend of Hamlet's, which is possible, or I figured maybe he's Danish, but this custom of getting really drunk and then dragging the bride off to bed and everything was only the nobility, the aristocracy, um... And that Horatio is sort of more new money type character, less aristocratic. That would also make sense for why he's so close to Hamlet, because there is a political element, obviously, to this story. Hamlet would have expected to be elected the king to replace his father uh, in the medieval Danish system. But Claudius has jumped in there and got himself elected instead. Um the play is ultimately about who runs Denmark and Hamlet is able to be close and friendly with Horatio and to a lesser extent with the guards who are not threats to his power. Uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, they might be more aristocratic and he's much more wary of them. They are direct threats to his power. So is Polonius and so on and so forth. So I've mentioned Catholic and Protestant. I've mentioned that Denmark by the early modern period was uh, largely Protestant. I will now give a very, and I mean very brief, history of Catholic and Protestant in Elizabethan England. Um, just for anyone who's not familiar with the basic outline, uh, because the Reformation in England... Um, this rise of, of Protestantism um, is not quite the same as in other parts of Europe. It is primarily a top-down political decision imposed by the monarchy. So basically, uh, the beginning of the 1500s, you've got Martin Luther and the Reformation happening in Europe. Martin Luther's 95 Theses are written in 1517. Meanwhile, Henry VIII in the... Uh, around the same time, or slightly afterwards, uh, marries his brother's widow with special permission from the Pope. This is Catherine of Aragon. She had been married to his older brother, Arthur. Now, that was not allowed. It was considered incestuous. And you see that mentioned several times in Hamlet, this idea that marrying your brother's widow is incest. Um, because uh, in the thinking of the time, your sister-in-law or brother-in-law is your brother or sister. 
and Henry VIII had got special permission from the Pope. They insisted that the marriage between Arthur and Catherine of Aragon hadn't been consummated, um, and so he married Catherine of Aragon. But they had one daughter and uh, many losses, so he wanted to annul their marriage and marry his mistress, Anne Boleyn. The Pope refused. Uh, the Pope said, no, 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 you, I think it was a new Pope by then, but he said, no, you had special permission from the Pope. Um, your marriage is fine, it can't be annulled. Henry then eventually broke away from the Catholic Church altogether and set up the Church of England so that he could divorce Catherine and marry Anne. And over the course of time, he ended up executing several friends, including Thomas More, who refused to renounce their loyalty to the Pope and the Catholic Church. Henry was succeeded by Edward VI, his son by his third wife, Jane Seymour, uh, and Edward VI, who was very young, brought in more Protestant reforms. He was Edward VI is more of a, a theological Protestant, whereas Henry VIII really just wants a divorce and a bunch of money from uh, the Catholic churches that he destroyed uh, and abbeys. Now, Edward then dies young and is succeeded by his older sister, Mary I, who is the daughter of Catherine of Aragon, the one surviving child of Henry and Catherine of Aragon, who is Catholic. So Mary tried to restore Catholicism and made England Catholic again. But then she died with no children and was succeeded by her younger sister, Elizabeth, the daughter of Anne Boleyn. Elizabeth is, of course, Protestant. Uh, under Elizabeth, Catholics are forbidden to practice their faith by the Act of Uniformity in 1559. And by law, everyone has to attend Anglican, that is Church of England, church every Sunday or be fined. A law which affects both Catholics and Puritans. The Church of England is uh, what might be called High Church or Anglo-Catholic. It is very similar to Catholicism. Edward VI has brought in some changes... But it's reasonably similar, and it's certainly nothing like Puritanism. So both Catholics and Puritans are affected by this law. So although the official religion had changed, people's beliefs don't just change overnight. It's more complicated than that. And especially with this largely top-down imposed change, it takes a while for changes in theology and belief to filter down. Also, ghost stories are remarkably persistent. Um, way back, uh, St. Augustine had tried to argue against the existence of ghosts, way back in the 4th century CE, um, but people continued to believe in them. Ghost stories continued to circulate until eventually the Catholic Church came up with this idea that ghosts are souls in purgatory who get released at night to go wander around and ask people to pray for them. So the telling of ghost stories isn't always connected to people's actual beliefs about life after death. It is sometimes, it is to some extent maybe, but the tradition of telling ghost stories is in some ways its own thing. And Catherine Belsey has suggested that Hamlet owes more to traditions of ghost storytelling, of what was known as A Winter's Tale, not the later Shakespeare play, <laughs> but the folklore tradition of telling spooky stories around the fire at night in winter. Uh, and she suggests that Hamlet has a lot more to do with that than issues of Catholic or Protestant religious belief. And this is an idea that I've talked about in my research as well in my article in my edited collection, Imagining the Afterlife. I talked about that in an ancient Roman context about the way ghost stories 
don't have to relate exactly to somebody's actual belief, although they can be a way to explore possibilities. And I think Hamlet is very, the play Hamlet is very much about that, about exploring possibilities. Over the course of the play, all sorts of explanations for what ghosts are get thrown out. Um, I should thrown out as in sort of disgust. <laughs> um, including briefly the suggestion that there are no such thing and everybody's seeing things, which I think Gertrude mentions at one point. Um, but all these different possibilities for why do people see ghosts, what's going on, what is a ghost, get talked about at various points in the play. Horatio is a scholar and he suggests three different possibilities from his reading, his knowledge of, of literature um, and of theology and of philosophy. So he says that the ghost could be a demon, an omen or a restless spirit. And this suggestion that it might be an omen is really interesting. Um, right at the end of the play, Horatio says he is more like an antique Roman than a Dane. And at the time, he's talking about his willingness to commit suicide, which uh, to an ancient Roman is an honourable death, whereas to anybody living in a Christian context in the medieval or early modern world is a mortal sin. Um, but he thinks like a Roman in other ways as well. And ghosts appearing as omens, often in dreams, and as death omens were common in Roman literature. Um, I have given him some more accurate examples than the one from the play. Um, but this is a, a genuine theme in Roman literature. Also, gods or spirits disguising themselves as ghosts. In Greek and Roman literature, this happens quite a lot. Um, a god or goddess, or a, a different kind of spirit, a daimon, a, a divine being, might disguise themselves as a dead person, um, as, as a ghost. So Horatio's suggestion that maybe it's an omen is very much an ancient Greco-Roman idea. But then that leaves the other two suggestions, um, which is a demon or a restless spirit. And the question, what is the ghost, really is the key question of the play. The ghost kicks off the action and everything that follows, how you feel about it, whether you think Hamlet does the right thing or not, depends on what you think the ghost is. Is it the soul of Hamlet's father? Or is it a demon disguised as Hamlet's father? Because that really changes how you read Hamlet's actions in the play. So the ghost claims to be a soul in purgatory and he describes walking the earth at night and returning to purgatory during the day, which does match with medieval folklore on that subject. But the ghost demands revenge, which is a bit odd when he's complaining that he's in purgatory for his sins and he's going to be there. I, I added a bit about how he's going to be there a long time um, on the assumption that he's sinned quite a lot. Um, he, his country is about to be uh, invaded by Fortinbras because he killed Fortinbras's father. So I'm just assuming that he sinned a lot. Um, but he's demanding revenge. So that's more sinning. Ken <laughs> in Christian theology demands for revenge are um, not very Christian. You're supposed to turn the other cheek. Um, it seems strange that he would demand that if he's trying to get out of purgatory faster. Normally, souls in purgatory in medieval folklore want prayers, they want masses said for them, they want some kind of intervention to get them out of purgatory, basically. So that leaves, is it a demon? Which is the Protestant interpretation. 
Is it a demon that's conning Hamlet to destroy him and his family? A demon who, for whatever reason, wants to bring down the Danish royal house and is therefore convincing Hamlet, possibly inaccurately, to kill his uncle. Now, having said that, in the play, Claudius does appear to be guilty from his confession. So that does kind of back up the ghost story that uh, Claudius genuinely is guilty. But it could still be a demon uh, trying to destroy Hamlet by making him carry out this act. In the play, Hamlet himself seems to subscribe to the Catholic belief. Now, the medieval source text, Prince Hamlet or Amleth would have been Catholic. Well, the original medieval legend, it wouldn't be Christian at all. Uh, in the source text for this, he would have been Catholic. If it's kind of late medieval Denmark. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the playwright thinks he's right. It doesn't go all that well. And interestingly, it is his Catholic obsession with whether or not Claudius has been shriven, has been absolved of his sins and will go straight to heaven that causes him to put off killing Claudius halfway through the play and causes all the tragedy in the second half of the play. Um, Claudius is confessing and Hamlet believes that if he dies as he is confessing, then his soul will be pure and he will go straight to heaven. He won't have to go to purgatory or even hell um, and therefore holds off killing him with the dramatic irony being that Claudius wasn't really confessing anyway because his heart wasn't in it. Um, but it is that Catholic obsession with that very Catholic idea um, that stops Hamlet from acting. And then it's right after that that Hamlet accidentally kills Polonius thinking he's Claudius and from that point on everybody starts falling like dominoes. Interestingly, the discussion of whether or not Ophelia drowned herself later in the play also reflects a court case from 1554 when England was Catholic again about whether or not a man had drowned himself or the water had drowned him. All of which uh, leads me to think maybe Hamlet's fatal flaw isn't procrastination, as I'm fairly sure I remember being taught in school, or an Oedipus complex. Uh, maybe his fatal flaw is Catholicism. Uh, he is too Catholic, and if he wasn't Catholic, first of all, he wouldn't believe that the ghost is a soul in purgatory. The Protestant theology says there is no purgatory, and if you think you see a ghost, it must be a demon pretending to be a dead person. Catholic theology says there is purgatory, and ghosts are souls on kind of limited release from purgatory. So the only reason he believes the ghost and does what it says in the first place is Catholic belief, and then he doesn't kill Claudius when he could because of Catholic belief and everything goes downhill. Having said that, uh, it does look like Fortinbras was going to kill them all anyway, so maybe Horatio is right and it was a Roman-style omen, uh, which does match with the play's very sympathetic attitude towards suicide. Um, suicide in Christian theology, especially Catholic, but uh, at this point, uh, most Christian theology, um, at this point in time, suicide is a mortal sin and... Um, people who had committed suicide could not be buried in sanctified ground in churchyards in the medieval period and this is referred to at Ophelia's funeral where the priest is very unhappy uh, at performing the funeral for Ophelia and burying her in, in holy ground um, which he has been forced to do by Claudius as the king uh, because um, despite Gertrude claiming it was an accident for this very reason they 
all are pretty convinced that she killed herself. Shakespeare himself, as the playwright, seems to be very understanding and Hamlet spends most of the play suicidal uh, and contemplating suicide. So maybe, having just written Julius Caesar not long before, Shakespeare was actually feeling very sympathetic towards the Roman point of view and maybe for him the ghost was an omen. Fortinbras was coming to kill them all, the ghost was an omen, letting them know that. Um, and, uh, and that's kind of, that was inevitable. Um, I don't know. I'm a bit more convinced by the idea that Hamlet's fatal flaw is being Catholic, but, um, so in my adaptation, I followed the interpretation of Scott G. Bruce from the Penguin Book of the Undead, which is that Horatio and the guards are essentially Protestant, although I've made Horatio a little bit more secular and sceptical, uh, and Hamlet Catholic, uh, that Hamlet is following Catholic doctrine. Now, there is some debate among early modern scholars and among literature specialists about whether or not Shakespeare himself was Catholic. Uh, so Raffle says Shakespeare's father, John, was Catholic or at least Catholic leaning and that Shakespeare himself was not anti-Catholic. So maybe not Catholic, but sympathetic towards Catholics. Um, doesn't match the sympathy toward suicide, which Catholics would definitely say is a mortal sin, but still. Uh, from about the year 2000, scholars have increasingly argued for a Catholic Shakespeare, or at least a Shakespeare who worked for Catholic families. This is another possibility suggested by Lupton in, in 2014, uh, that maybe Shakespeare was working for Catholic families and that's why he's so sympathetic to Catholicism. Other scholars uh, like Richard McCoy think that Shakespeare was entirely secularist, i.e. basically atheist or um, not specifically religious, not kind of Catholic or Protestant really, um, but with more secular interests. Um, Chicken would sort of concur with the idea that he quite likes the Roman attitude. Uh, Lupton notes that despite this range of views, all of us, this is uh, literature scholars, largely concur with what Marotti set out in his contribution to Lancastrian Shakespeare which is that first, Shakespeare's family background was Catholic, but his religious education and acculturation were mixed. And second, that Shakespeare's audiences, whether that was the public theatre, the court or other venues, included Catholic spectators. Now, at court, of course, there might be Catholic visitors from Europe. However, Lupton argues that Shakespeare practices an abounding secularism. So there's a lot of thinking that Shakespeare is just secular, broadly speaking, even if his father maybe had Catholic leanings. Uh, Shakespeare does seem a lot less harsh on Catholics than either Christopher Marlowe or Thomas Kidd. Though having said that, if you think about Romeo and Juliet, it is all Friar Lawrence's fault that it all goes wrong. Uh, it is the Catholic friar and his ridiculous plan um, that causes the tragedy in Romeo and Juliet, or at least some of the tragedy. Uh, Romeo's fault um, that he murders Juliet's cousin. But it is Friar Lawrence's fault that Romeo and Juliet themselves end up dead, which does rather bring me back to my Catholicism is a fatal flaw interpretation of Hamlet. So, as I said, I am not an early modern specialist. I am really just getting to grips with the early modern period and what's going on with ideas about ghosts and ghost folklore and religious beliefs in this period. I do think it's very clear that the question of Hamlet, the play, is what is the ghost? 
and how you interpret the play depends entirely on how you interpret the ghost and I do believe that Shakespeare deliberately opens up all of those possibilities. He just mentions all of these different possibilities and then he wants you, the audience, to make your mind up which it is. So Catholics will think it is the spirit of Hamlet's father uh, wanting vengeance um, for his death, for the fact that he was murdered without chance to confess and is in purgatory. Protestant members of the audience will assume it's a demon. It is a demon that is conning Hamlet, that is bringing down this royal family. It's a demon that brings all this death and destruction um, to Denmark. And if Hamlet wasn't so Catholic, um, he might have realised that and he might have killed Claudius at a better point as well. People who are not religious at all might sympathise more with the, the suggestion that they're all seeing things. Or if they are seeing something, this idea that it is more of a pagan omen, an ancient Roman omen, a sign that something is rotten in the state of Denmark, that um, that they're all doomed to say Fortinbras turns up at the end, presumably with the intent of killing everybody. So they are all doomed anyway. Um, so you could interpret it if you're more secular or more atheist or whatever as it's, a, it's an omen, it's a sign that it's all about to go horribly wrong. And all of those interpretations, I think, are open to the audience and deliberately so. So uh, thanks to my colleague Chris Langley at Newman University for checking I wasn't saying anything too completely daft about early modern England. Um, I do have quite a few uh, readings to suggest because I obviously had to do a fair bit of research for this myself. Um, so I have the Cambridge School Shakespeare edition of Hamlet, um, which comes with notes, uh, rather good notes. Um, my copy is a good 22 years old because it's the one I used for A-level English. Um, I assume that these are still available. Um, you can read Hamlet for free online. Literally, if you just go to the Wikipedia page, it has lists of links um, to uh, copies of the text that are available online. Um, so it can be read online for free very easily. I have been reading The Time Traveller's Guide to Elizabethan England by Ian Mortimer um, to kind of get myself familiar with early modern England in general, um, with early modern English society. Um, I did think about talking about clothing and things, but then, of course, I decided, no, we, we don't have a particular setting for this story, so we'll just avoid mentioning clothes. <laughs> but, uh, but that's a very useful guide uh, to Elizabethan England uh, more broadly, both culture and sort of practical aspects like clothing. As I mentioned, the Penguin Book of the Undead reproduces some of this section of the play and has very useful notes, um, which is where I started with that interpretation that I, that I followed of Scott G. Bruce's where... Horatio and the guards are Protestant and Hamlet is Catholic and that's their interpretations of what the ghost is um, and I watched several productions of Hamlet mainly Kenneth Branagh's 1996 film which is brilliant it's so good it's absolutely brilliant um, it's about four hours long um, but the key is obviously just to watch it over two nights uh, if that seems a bit long um, it does have an intermission about two-thirds of the way through it's so good it is a brilliant brilliant film I um, absolutely love that film. I also watched the 2008 RSC production starring David Tennant, which I was very lucky enough to see live. I've seen a couple of RSC productions of Hamlet live 
uh, one back when I was doing my A-level starring Samuel West and then this one starring David Tennant, uh, which is very, very good. Uh, that's the one with Patrick Stewart as both Claudius and the ghost. I also had a look at the 1990 Franco Zeffirelli film starring Mel Gibson, which I actually had on VHS a long time ago, but I got rid of my VHS players, so I found a clip from it on YouTube. And similarly, in a clip on YouTube, the 1948 film starring Laurence Olivier, both of those emphasise the kind of cliffside castle by the sea aspect. Now, if you have access to JSTOR, to uh, academic articles via JSTOR, um, I used quite a few articles from JSTOR in the course of doing my research. So just to highlight some of the main ones. So the academic articles that I looked at on JSTOR included Burton Raffles' Shakespeare and the Catholic Question, which is about whether or not Shakespeare was Catholic. Uh, Julia Reinhard Lupton's Birthplaces, Shakespeare's Beliefs Stroke Believing in Shakespeare. Again, partly about whether or not Shakespeare's Catholic, but also about belief more broadly in Shakespeare's works and Shakespeare's own beliefs. Uh, Catherine Belsey's Shakespeare's Sad Tale for Winter, Hamlet and the Tradition of Fireside Ghost Stories, which was incredibly useful. Um, really, really good kind of summary of medieval fireside ghost stories and how Hamlet relates to them. And I didn't really talk about it um, in sort of the course of the podcast, but Louise Schleiner's Latinized Greek drama in Shakespeare's writing of Hamlet, um, where she talks about uh, whether it's likely that Shakespeare read Greek plays in Latin. So Shakespeare scholar, scholars uh, tend to say that Shakespeare didn't read Greek. He read Latin, but not Greek. Um, but she's suggesting that he may have read Greek drama plays of Aeschylus, Sophocles, Euripides in Latin, in Latin translations that English translations weren't available at the time, but Latin ones were. Uh, I mention this mainly because I think Shakespeare must have been familiar with Greek tragedy on some level. Um, plays like Antigone in particular, where she talks about um, how her wedding chamber is going to be her grave. Um, you can see the, the influences of Greek drama in Shakespeare's own tragedy um so that's certainly an argument that i find convincing so i thought i'd mention it so uh thank you for bearing with me through the hiatus and coming back um i will attempt to do more early modern stories uh, a little bit more often going forward uh, now that i've given myself a basic grounding in early modern history uh, and early modern ghost folklore. Uh, having said that, next month is going to be more Romans. Um, I'm going to go back to my Romans for at least a month um, to give myself a break um, and get myself on more solid ground uh, where I feel a bit more like I know what I'm talking about. So thank you very much for listening and I will see you next time. Creepy Classics was written and performed by Juliet Harrison. Music composed and performed by Ed Harrison. It was produced by Juliet Harrison with assistance from Newman University. Mm -hmm.